Hi, this is John Colton Barry, story editor of Be Cool Scooby-Doo, and you are listening to a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Yeah. The gang's out here, they're on the case, and there's no ghost that they wouldn't face, cause they dig it, dig it, dig it, Scooby-Doo. Yeah, they dig it, dig it, dig it, Hey Scooby fans and welcome to another installment of a podcast named Scooby-Doo. On this episode we're going to be revisiting the Lance Falk interview. I'm going to be posting the second part as promised where Lance continues to talk about his experience working on those first four direct-to-video Scooby-Doo movies from Zombie Island to Scooby-Doo and the Cyberchase. But before we get to that, I just wanted to mention uh, two other things. One is, if you haven't been checking them out, Nick from What's With You Scooby-Doo has been posting short commentaries on these direct-to-video movies. Uh, He's done the first four. He's just posted Scooby-Doo in the Cyber Chase. I shared it to the Facebook. Be sure to check it out as Nick has a good time going through those old movies and giving some thoughts on them. And they kind of dovetail nicely with the Lance Falk interview. Obviously, it wasn't planned that way, but be sure to check those out. The show's called What's With You, Scooby-Doo. If you haven't checked it out already, you can search it on Facebook or uh, you can just link through the podcast name Scooby-Doo Facebook page. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is John Colton Berry has just recently on Twitter announced that it is official. Warner Brothers is going to launch a boomerang cartoon streaming service, which benefits us Scooby-Doo fans because the very long-awaited Be Cool Scooby-Doo Season 2 will actually debut on this streaming service, as well as the unaired Season 1 episodes. Now, in Canada here, we've actually had the first complete season streaming on Netflix. Uh, Everything from Mystery 101 to The People vs. Fred Jones, which has been fabulous. I remember when they first got posted, I was a little disheartened to hear that Canada was the only region that had these, and that there's still people in the states and other parts of the world who haven't seen these episodes because they're not available which is just kind of terrible nobody really understands why the show's been kind of getting the runaround and not getting the support but there you have it now this uh, boomerang streaming service It'll launch sometime in spring of 2017, and they're saying it's going to be about $5 a month, and it's going to have not just Scooby-Doo, but Tom and Jerry and Bugs Bunny, and and I'm not sure how people are really going to receive it. As excited as we're going to be to kind of have access to, like, season two of Scooby-Doo, it is going to be the exclusive home for new episodes of Scooby-Doo, Looney Tunes, and Tom and Jerry. Now, I'm not sure what this is going to mean for Be Cool Scooby-Doo on Netflix, but I kind of get the impression that any Scooby-Doo Scooby-Doo product moving forward will probably end up on the uh, Boomerang streaming service, although perhaps the direct-to-video movies like the recently released Shaggy's Showdown will still go to Netflix as all the movies previous have. Although, from a financial perspective, I don't really know if that makes sense since the whole point of doing this is to create, you know, new revenue streams, and unless they have an existing contract with Netflix that covers, you know, X amount of movies, it's very likely that they're just going to move all their stuff the way Sony 
needed a little while ago and that would kind of suck because I've also got the impression from what I've been able to kind of read and pick through that this streaming service is as of spring 2017 only going to be available in the US which means again a single region has access to the material and everybody else is kind of SOL. Now there's still going to be probably a DVD release. There's still going to be access somehow. Uh, it's also very possible that just because it's being released on the Boomerang streaming service in the States, it may still be able to go on Netflix in Canada. So until it actually happens, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out and who's going to be able to watch it. But at least we know it's coming. At least we know where it's coming to. And we have a vague idea of when it's coming. So that's something. That's more than we had before. And speaking of more than we had before, I think uh, that's probably as good a segue as any to move into Lance Fault Part 2. I won't take up any more of your time. We'll just jump into that. I uh, hope you enjoy Part 2, and we will see you on the other side. All right, let's go! <laughs> Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So do you want to hear that key story? Uh, sure, yeah. Okay. Once upon a time, our development crew, led by Dave Astoy, was told, you're making Scooby-Doo movies, and they're going to be hour long. And you're going to, you know, and you'll get a writer. And Dave said, well, let's use Glenn because we've worked with him before, and he's written Scooby-Doo. And you ought, to, you ought to get a hold of Glenn because Glenn will talk your ear off for years. So, and he's a big fan of Scooby-Doo. I've been wanting to talk to uh, some of the writers. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to hunt him down. Glenn, yeah, Glenn's got to talk to him. So, so anyway, there was the quote unquote brain trust uh, of this thing. There was Davis, of course, Glenn, Jim Stenstrom, who'd be the head designer and myself. And um, where I would be possibly helping in a writing capacity, supplementing Glenn. I definitely work in an artist capacity, supplementing Jim and also kind of being at Davis's elbow in the post-production and produce junior producery things. So we sat around the room, we talked about it and Jim was the first guy that spoke and Jim said, you know what? Uh, I want to do real monsters. I'm trying to Scooby-Doo. I kind of don't get it. Why it's always a guy in a mask. And if it's not a real monster, you're limited by what a human being could do in a costume and it's a cartoon for crying out loud. We can do anything. Let's, let's have real monsters. And Glenn says, no, 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 no. Scooby-Doo is a solvable mystery <laughs> where the audience solves it. It's always been that way. That's the premise of the show. That's what it is. We need to do that. We're just doing it longer. And Davis said, the thing is about that is you can do that for 22 minutes. But if you do it for 70 minutes and you're yanking people around for 70 minutes and it turns out to be a fake, first of all, it's really difficult to hide that, the, the resolution for that long. And the other thing is it's kind of unsatisfying to do an entire movie where it's a guy in a rubber mask. And I was the guy who said, and this is my, my, my one significant contribution, but I think it's a really great one, is I said, we need to do both then. So we need to have, definitely in the body of the story, we need to have a solvable mystery and an unmask and do all the Scooby-Doo stuff, but we also need real monsters woven into the story in some fashion. 
so that uh, we can fill it out, but also to make the stories more um, sophisticated because we can have clues leading to one thing, but they're really, really about the other thing. And so you can do all these little back and forth cross things. And as soon as I said that, everyone was like, yeah, that's it. That's what we do. And so I think, I don't know if they still, still, still handle it that way, but that's how we did ours. And I'll give you an example because the, the uh, in Witch's Ghost, the whole first two thirds is about like this Witch's Ghost, uh, you know, uh, um, kind of haunting the Salem recreation thing, but it's a big tourist attraction and the Salem recreation city or a town. And it turns out everybody's in on it because uh, it helps the tourist trade. And that was how the story ended was, Oh, it's not just one guy. It's not just one suspect. It's all the suspects It's everybody. So, so that was the script we were given. And what we did was we said, ah, but there really is a witch's ghost that they were this legend that they were all leaning into is truth and that they really resurrect the witch's ghost and the, the writer character who's like a Stephen King character coming back to his new England home is really using the gang to get his hands on the Necromonicon, which will really get the witch's ghost resurrected and he will control her and be powerful. And so the last third of it or last quarter of it is dealing with the real thing, right? Well, we added that that part. Or the other example is um, Alien Invaders, where I set it up. The opening credits, you see a spaceship coming through uh, the outer solar system to the inner solar system, landing, and you see a UFO buzz the mystery machine and spin it out of control, and you definitely have no question it's a real spaceship because of nothing man-made could do all the things you just saw. And then when the game's out, out because the, the cars crash in the middle of the desert, Shaggy and Scooby are walking through the desert, they run into a couple of aliens on hovercrafts. Well, your brain, as the audience, is going to see, well, I saw a spaceship, now I see aliens. Therefore, those aliens have to be real because the spaceship was real. Well, no, the aliens were fake. And ultimately, when you find out who the real aliens were, they were the ones that looked human that Shaggy and Scooby fell in love with. And the aliens are really benign in the story. They're good. And the, the guys you see as the big-headed kind of Mars attacks type aliens, they're really like pulling a scam, like a typical Scooby-Doo scam, you know, where they're trying to scare people off with this whole Area 51 thing so they can mine uranium or whatever they're mining. So you see, we mix the two elements up. And the other things that also give us two tracks. So you have, because you have a lot of characters, you know, Shaggy, Scooby, and their two alien girls, like an alien dog and alien girl, but we, we don't know they're aliens. And they're following a line of investigation. But they're literally stumbling onto the bad guys that are falling through a hole in the ground. Where meanwhile, Shaggy, uh, Velma, Fred, and Daphne are looking for clues and looking for footprints and have a magnifying glass and they're interviewing suspects and they're putting A and B together and connecting the dots. And they get there also, but they get there through work where Shaggy and Scooby get there literally because they're agents of chaos and fall through a hole in the ground and solve it because they're not intellectual characters. So, so it gave us the room to do both stories. You see, I thought that was a really good choice after the structure of zombie Island and the surprise of zombie Island to not just suddenly milk that like movie after movie after movie and shake it up. 
Yeah, well, well, it was Glenn's, of course, Glenn's gag in the room when I told you about that little initial meeting. Glenn's was like, oh, yeah, yeah, what if there are a bunch of fake things? And then at some point, Fred is like, it's so-and-so in a mask. And a zombie comes at him. He just grabs him by the hair and pops his head off. And then the head, like, <laughs> screams at him, you know, like it's still alive. And they're like, ah! So they think it's fake. You know, it's a very Evan Costello thing. They don't believe it, right? And then it's really a thing. And we laughed our asses off when he said that. And said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he put that in the show. And the whole show is that joke. Told That's what sold me on that movie in 98 when I saw the trailer. I was like, I got to watch this. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's, so that's Glenn being very enthusiastic and supportful of that idea is that, oh, we could do both. And better yet, they could even kind of, kind of cross over each other back and forth, back and forth. To his credit, I mean, he set a great template. And I still think, and I'm, listen, I'm proud of Alien Invaders, but I still think Zombie Island, and I haven't seen all those movies by any means, but Zombie Island, I think, is the best one that I've seen. And that has a lot to do with Glenn. That has a lot to do with we had zero interference from anybody. We just got to make it. It's due to the fact that after that, they told us, ah, it's a little scary and a little gory for a little kid. And we, told, we had to back it way down after that and tone them down. And, you know, I think it was cool that it was a little scary. You know, kids like that. They're fine with that. You know, along with not being too explicit or horrific about it. So that was, that's what you get when you have, you know, good artists who work well together without a lot of interference. You, you get Zombie Island, you know. That makes so and, much sense um, when you say that, because one of the questions I was going to ask you was, you go from Zombie Island, which does have that sort of darker tone and more sophisticated storytelling, and with each successive yeah. movie, the comedy gets amped up until you get to yeah. Cyber Chase, where, like I said, it's it's just a 74-minute romp with a lot of gags yeah. and action, and sort of all that texture and atmosphere is kind of gone. So to find that it wasn't a creative choice, and it was kind of more of the studio noticing, yeah, oh, it, it this was, is... <laughs> and it wasn't a really hard, like, you guys got to blah, blah, blah. We were sort of like, you know what? Can you lighten it up a little bit, guys? You know, and my kids are watching this sort of thing. All right, all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, back, we'll back down on the dripping zombies, you know, things like that. And, and you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a fight or considered a great hardship, but I think it was a little better before we did that. You know, I think it. I think it. T- it took a little ten percent ding in enjoyment. You know, but I had a ball. Do- Listen, I had a ball doing my Alien one. I had a. I had a ball working on uh, uh, Witch's Ghost. I thought that was a lot of fun. Cyber Chase was a kind of like n- not a pleasure for anybody. Um, it came out looking great, like the like the animation studio we used really, really did an amazing job on it. I think it looks better than all the other ones. Yeah. Who brought Mook in? Did. But yeah, Mook, Mook's a Davis studio uh, that he, he had a relationship with. I did some of our better Johnny Quest and some of our better SWAT cats episodes. And uh, we, yeah, we had a bit of a relationship with him. I don't think they exist anymore. Sadly. Yeah. We, uh, we were very pleased with them, you know, it was and, beautiful uh, work, yeah. It, yeah, and if you dig around like our, our Swat Cat and Johnny Quest and look at the Mook ones, they're they're terrific. You know, they're really beautiful shows. 
It's like when you see the um, TMS when TMS did the uh, Batman's or Justice Leagues. Yeah, those were always like the best. Yeah, ones. Exactly. Batman Beyond's. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, when the Batman did that reboot, you know, that kind of restyled boot. Some of those are just like uh, over the edge, and things are so good. You know, they look they're like little mini movies, and and early on in Batman Taz, there was that Clayface two-parter and the first part of that looks like a damn feature to me looks like a Miyazaki feature yeah and uh it's so good and I knew that blew them away I knew that they were saying like man they're doing like self-color lighting that we didn't ask for they just did it (laughs) you know and and added these touches uh gestures and things that we didn't and our Johnny Quest are kind of all over the map some are just oh they're really painfully animated and then some are beautiful, and Mook did the beautiful ones, you know. It's nice when the overseas studio you're so, working with is excited about it and you get that extra production value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know, like, like anything, there are all sorts of pressures. It's not like these guys suck and those guys don't suck. It's, you know, it's budget and schedule and resources and, and circumstance and the culture of the studio. And the, uh, a lot of the overseas studio have their A team and their B team and their C team and and our studio is paying for this, that, or the other, you know, and sometimes it's like the people you want aren't available. So you go with these other guys and sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. And, you know, um, Batman Taz is a really great example because it, it go it's all over the map, you know, at summary, but luckily they're all written and scored so well that, you know, even the ones that are a little rubbery looking still are still pretty compelling shows. But then when you when you get like Heart of Ice, you get a clay faced one or the the Mister Freeze one, and it's like uh, every all the cylinders are firing, you know, it's it's amazing, and uh, I think I think Zombie Island had that. I think Zombie Island does pretty much. That was like the height of it, you know. It all it all worked in that first one. We. We had the creative freedom. We had the resources. We had the, we had a great crew. You know, great crew that really cared about what we were doing. You know, I was curious what the development so, time uh, to Zombie Island was. I'm assuming with each successive movie, you had a lot shorter time to write and design stuff. But like, how long did Zombie Island? Well, how much breathing room did you get? Well, we, we, uh, we, the birthing of those project is kind of like about nine months between uh, conception and delivery, which is, there's your birth metaphor. And, uh, you know, it's a, a crew that works really fast. Glenn's a, like a freakishly fast writer. And he can start, he'll start talking to Jim, telling Jim what characters are in it. And Jim's already starting to design before there's even a script because he knows there's going to be Civil War zombies and knows what the main, who the main suspects are because we get a little beat outline and we start going through and we, and Glenn is there so we can talk to him. So, so our development is sort of simultaneous with production, you know, and, you know, one nice thing that came out of it is more of a personal story was, was they do these, they do these dog and pony shows where they, they just need to pitch it to like home video and various companies. So what you do is you take a model sheet or a model sheet drawing and you blow it up, Xerox it up, or, or rather, you know, get make a copy of it, and then you take markers and kind of color it up, and then you blow it up and you put it on a piece of uh, foam core. And then when you go and pitch a story, you have these big giant flip cards with colored drawings on them. And just by default, I was the guy that colored these things. And 
you know, I did it in marker and color pencil and rendered them, not in a way that we really use in production because you can't really render stuff in anim- TV animation. But but I had a lot of fun, like, uplighting the zombies and making their eyes glow and stuff like that. And, you know, Jim would draw them and I would color them. And it really didn't matter, like, production-wise what the colors were because – you know, when you really do suffer in, for animation, you have to have the backgrounds in front of you so the characters read against the backgrounds so but don't clash with it. And this character works with that character, so you can't have similar colors. And there are all these other considerations, but I was just doing standalone art. Here's a zombie, here's a this, here's a that. So I made it look as good as I could by itself. So they all went through and they looked really good. And, and Davis ended up liking my color sense enough on these to say, why don't you give those to color key? Cause I like where you've gone with them. So that's a really good starting point. And eventually when he was working at SD and there wasn't really a designer job for me, but I needed a gig. He said, well, you'll just be the color key guy. I like your color sense, but you need, but you can't do it. Markers. You have to learn Photoshop. And I hadn't touched Photoshop by then. You know, I was a pencil guy. And so he said, and you start Monday and that's your job. And so you better learn Photoshop over the weekend, (laughs) you know, and I did, you know, I called in some friends who were really good at it and they kind of gave me the fundamentals to just do that job. And since then I built out and that's all I use now and I use Photoshop a lot, but that's the kind of guy Davis is. It's like, he'd rather work with me than someone who's experienced in that. Like he figures Lance is trainable and I know him, you know, so he's that guy. So that's that's why I have a lot, lot of loyalty for him, you know. Was, and then I have a million Davis stories like that, where he's, boy, that, he didn't have to do that great thing for me, but he did. Was Jim yeah. the one that redesigned the the models for Fred and Daphne and Velma? And I was kind of yeah, I was kind of yeah, curious yeah. why Fred and Daphne got the more major redesigns, whereas the other three because kind of, they looked the they looked the most out of date because of the bell bottoms and the ascot and things. Right. And it was just, it, I think it was a, it might've been us. It might've been an internal note or it might've been a, a note from the executives like, geez, no, you know, that's so seventies looking. The thing, the funny thing about Shaggy is Shaggy's timeless. The, he, he could say he's a beatnik, then he's a hippie, then he's a hipster, then he's a, then he's like a grunge guy. Then he's a goth guy. You could almost like, there's always room for a Shaggy because there's always like a slovenly, there's yep, always a yeah, slacker, yeah. No, yeah. But but the other guys, you know, ascots and bell bottoms, they're just but they still do those. You know, they still do direct video movies with those guys. Because they're branded those, thus, you know. Yeah, I I think it was an audio commentary with Chris Carter I heard one time. He was talking about an episode of the X Files. It was called Triangle and it was uh, uh the characters kinda go back in time on the Queen Elizabeth and yeah, yeah, some yeah, of the characters yeah, yeah. are playing Nazis yeah, and yeah. And he said there's a point yeah. when you create something that they become so culturally ingrained and iconic that you can basically do anything with them and people accept right. it. Like, you know, you see all these different iterations of Batman or Superman or right. and I, I kind of feel like Scooby-Doo has has hit that or or hit that many years ago because we talked earlier about the different shows and the experimentation that they do with it and it's kind of like okay. whatever they do on, on some level, it works. Yeah. Well, the good thing is the base is always Shaggy and Scooby, and they're pretty generic. You know, as long as you don't mess with it. And I think actually like that 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, somebody wanted to experiment with Shaggy and Scooby, and that was 
that did not fly with anybody because they gave Shaggy sneakers and they gave him a red, a reddish shirt instead of a greenish shirt. And that like, they never did that again, you know? Um, and well, it was a, a gag of mine in, in, uh, in uh, Alien Invaders where they want to impress these girls, you know, so, so Shaggy has his shirt tucked in and his hair flipped back into like a, like a ducktail. And, uh, they're, they're all like kind of neat. And Scooby has a, a big kind of, you know, curl, like spit curl thing going on his collar, but it's all shiny and everything. And it was a gag, you know, and we got mileage out of it. Like, wow, look at those guys. <laughs> Ah, they must have a date or something, you know, kind of thing. And you can you can go there because you're so used to seeing them in, in the normal sense that you can do that. But if but if they're all over the map all the time, you know, because even even our uh, be cool, they're sort of them. Only they're kind of seen through a prism of a different art style. But the outfits are kind of kind of similar, but, yeah. you know. So and also the other the other thing is color. You know, if you keep them in the same family colors, it tends to look fine, right? You know, if she has red hair and pur- a purple dress. It's going to look like that. Velma's in her her vermilion and her orange with her brown hair. It's going to, and her glasses, it's going to look like Velma, you know, so. A couple of those movies, uh, primarily uh, Zombie Island and Cyber Chase, seem super design heavy. Yeah. I was, I was wondering, like, yeah. how much work kind of that first and last one were on a design level because there's in zombie Island, you first have that opening set piece to, to close off like the last mystery incorporated case. Then you have that montage in the middle as they're traveling the country. Then you have all of these zombies. You have all of this. There's just so many settings and characters. And I, I thought especially with the last uh, one, it might be harder, but well, yeah, it was like we had, we had time on the first one to do it. And on the, and on the second, on the fourth one, we didn't have time to do it, but we had to do it anyway, you know, because now we were in a, we had a, we had a schedule that said, yeah, four is going to end by here because five is right there and you just finished up three. So, um, it's, uh, where zombie Island, it was just kind of considered a one-off at the time we were making it. And it was like, well, well, the home video department would kind of like to get it by this time, but there isn't like this train schedule to keep. Yeah, I, I would say like, listen, we're we're our, that particular unit. You know, we're experienced, we're professionals, we're pretty fast at what we do, pretty good at what we do, because we've been doing it for a long time. You know, that like a challenging production is typical. You know. It's just this is how those things are, and uh, yeah, they were they were kind of heavy. And if need be, you know, we'd pull on some freelancers to do character cleanup or some ancillary designs. Um, but you know, our main background designer on all all that stuff, and he's one of the Davis regulars. Is a uh, his name is uh, Drew Gentle or Andrew Gentle? He might have been credited. Well, Drew is like a vet since the '60s, and he has recently retired, but. Drew um, is uh, incredibly fast and very versatile. And we almost just need Drew to design these, all the backgrounds for something. And then we just supplement him, you know, in a, in a case of a crazy show with too much to do in it. But Drew always takes the lead on these. And you know, like I said, I've written a bunch of shows with Davis. Drew was, Drew was the guy that did all the backgrounds 
for everything I ever did. And I never had a note about it. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Or more often, no, that, that's even better than what I was thinking. Yeah. I did notice there were more storyboard artists as each show went along as well. That's a schedule thing? Uh, absolutely a schedule thing. Like ideally, ideally you want the smallest crew with the longest schedule possible because you have you can use the best people. Right. And you can be more consistent. But when you're when you have like, you know, but when you don't have a lot of time and you need to get a whole a whole board out, yeah, you need it here there. You need a whole bunch of guys to do it. So, as for your role on the movies, your actual credit changes on each one, and you have multiple credits on each film. You start as model mm-hmm. coordinator, and then your mm-hmm. artwork coordinator, and additional development, and color stylist. And it, was it a very fluid environment? Did you guys have really set roles, or uh, no? Did they just need you to do more work. Davis is, that's how Davis is. He lets lets people do uh, things they're, they're inclined to do. And, and he's good about testing people. And we had a, had a production. It's a little too tight, tight lace right now in the business. But at that time he'd kind of like, well, you know, here are my guys and we need all this stuff done. Let's see, you'll do this and do this and do that. Like I said, I was, I was doing some coloring uh, just because someone had to do it. And Jim could have colored it, but, colored his own stuff but that way if i colored it jim could do twice as many drawings and and if i colored it they could be in color you know so so it facilitated that and i was just part of the brain trust so if there was any you know i'd work on work on the story with him a little bit or i'd uh you know do the do this and that um that's just that's just davis's leadership you know and his and his being a good guy and trying to see what his crew's capable of and knowing that I was kind of antsy to try other things. But uh, where the credits lied, I don't know. I think down the road, I said, well, if you're using my color choices for everything, even though uh, a, a color key person is interpreting them, you know, could I get a color credit? Because that'd be kind of cool. And he said, yeah, I think so. I think you pick the colors for these things. So, yeah, I'll give, give you that. And then story-wise, I came later and helped them. Like Glenn, I had nothing to do with the story on Zombie Island whatsoever. That was Glenn and Davis, you know, 100%. Except for that arch, arching, like, do we ought to do both. I mean, that's my contribution to that. But in the subsequent things, in, the, in, the, in Witch's Ghost, the opening thing with the mummy, I wrote that bit. I kind of wrote the prologue and kind of cobbled on the story with the other ones. So there's that one. Third one... Um, that what happened the second one is Glenn kind of got kind of got screwed out of a writing credit because he did a massive rewrite on the second movie. But the writers brought in got their credit, so Glenn didn't really get a credit for it, and he didn't not the credit he should have gotten because he really restripped the gears of that thing. And so on ours, of uh, the third one that really Davis and I did all the all the work on. Glenn was in a meeting or two, and I think Glenn provided the idea of the jackalope. Thought that would be funny to have in the Southwest, but he got a story credit on that specifically so he would get residuals that he should have gotten on the second one. And I was more than happy to accommodate that. So really, it's like story by Davis and myself, and screenplay by Davis and myself. But but Glenn has a, a story credit on that because he didn't get one in the previous movie. Then he should have gotten it. Hell, he should have gotten a story by credit on the previous movie. And so what we figured is we were just going to keep making these and making them and making them and getting to write them. And 
all that stuff would have evened out, you know, eventually. And I think like I was, I was going to do another one. Davis would kind of co-write all of them to steer the ship, but Jim, he and Jim were writing one together. That was really good. And they did uh, um, cyber chase instead. And they had a great script and uh, never got used. And so we, uh, you know, it was all part of the just getting out of there, you know, thing that we never used it. And then it was going to flip back to Glenn. Then it was going to flip back to me and Glenn Davis was going to do kind of co-write all of them. And it was going to just alternate between Glenn Davis and myself. And we're going to do it two a year. And we're going to start adding more songs because you can get song residuals. You know, it was just a thing like, oh, this is a really pleasant job with people I like. And it's an opportunity to make some residuals, you know, and it just it just didn't. There's a trivia yeah. bit that the Zombie Island script was based on an unused SWAT cats idea. Is that true? No, no. There was, um, the, uh, well, elements. There are elements um, that we did a SWAT cat. Yeah, you know what? Uh, that's more like true. That's the that's the cur- uh, the curse of Cataluna, kind yes. of the werewolfy part in it. And the woman who turned into the werewolf, and she's a seductress, and that's yeah. We did a, Glenn did a SWAT caps that never got made with that idea, and he took that idea and he just kind of popped it into the into Zombie Island as one of many ideas in Zombie Island. Yeah, you know maybe Zombie Island had four different things going on in it, and that was one of them, and that was that was, uh, fairly recycled from an unused SWAT caps. I I tried to pitch Johnny Quest in nineteen. 86 and failed miserably but i kept that i kept those notes and in the 90s when i got to write the show i definitely reworked a couple of those ideas and got them made you know so just don't throw anything out yeah. glenn would not have done that if if that swat hats got made but it never did so the whole cat god and zombie thing there, there's a yeah. weirdness to that they don't really dovetail into each other but it's that wonkiness that sort of adds an extra element of coolness to that movie yeah yeah i i think uh i think he did a hell of a job on that thing and i've always been a big fan of that script you know as kind of a good how-to how to do those movies i think we you know we hit the ground running with a with a great template and yeah, Glenn, Glenn should be rightfully proud of that, that job, you know? So now there's another trivia bit that I ran across that mentioned something about Jim wanting to maybe use live action actors in cyber chase. Is there any truth to that? that you um, know of? I think, I, I think cyber chase was a show that was such a, such a mess that we were, we were, trying any anything and everything to make it kind of work or at least be interesting or to just we're spitballing it i think that was probably something jim said hey what if we do this what do we what if we do puppets or what do we do just something to bring this stupid thing to life and we are kind of going in another dimension or the vr world and maybe we could have real guys there and i yeah my recollection is we got a little excited about the thought of that but the, there was no way in hell they were going to shoot that, you know. It's not really practical. But it was an idea of like, yeah, maybe they're going to cyberspace. We'd have real actors, and that that would make this thing, the whole project, really interesting. All of a sudden, Jim coming up with a great idea, you know. But but it was probably like, you know, you guys aren't going to go for this. But what if when they were in, they were like in cyberspace, they were real, 
you know, we're like, oh, geez, that's cool. <laughs> and then it was kind of like, yeah, but they'll never let us do it. And that probably died right then. So do you have a so, favorite of the four films? I think Zombie Island's the best of the four. But obviously the one I, one I wrote is the one I have the most emotional ownership of. But I think Witch's Ghost is really good. I think those, those, all three of those are terrific. And all three of them bring it to the table and do a good job. And they work and they're well-produced and they're well-written. And uh, I would never say that I'm a better writer than Glenn, you know, but I'm real proud of what I did. I think the fourth movie is the best looking one, you know, even though the story's what it is. I think it's, I think it's gorgeous looking and move kill themselves on it. We kill them ourselves as designers on getting that thing really cool. And we're, cause we're compensating for a weak story. So we threw ourselves into the design aspect. Do you think the move to that was digital a, that was a show that, just everything, you know, everything about it. So, so we, and, and storyboard wise, that thing, that kind of thing got an emergency that probably has a lot of board credits on it. It does. Yeah. It's uh, the most probably of the group more than any of them because that was an emergency rewriting and now we don't have any time to board it. So we handed that board out to a lot of people just to get the thing done. And we were designing furiously on that. And we probably the credits across the board on that are thicker. I would imagine that one has the most designers, the most bored people because it was the heaviest script and also the most problematic script that we did, you know, and at the end of the day, well, 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 we brought it as far as production value is concerned. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't look rushed, you know, it reads rushed story-wise, but, but the boards are solid and the designs are beautiful and the backgrounds are beautiful. And it's a gauntlet to throw down to another crew and say, make, make something looks as good as this. You know, it's not a challenge to make something <laughs> that's a, that's a better movie, you know, cause that'd be easy. So there's a tiki one I need to see because I'm really into tiki. I know we did a Hawaiian tiki one. Some One of the crews did that. I'm kind of curious about that because I like that whole Polynesian thing quite a bit. I think that's the Aloha Scooby-Doo. Probably. Probably, yeah. Okay, uh, a couple more questions so, here and then I'll let you go. All right. Um, what would you say your overall takeaway experience from doing these four movies was? Well, that, that I believe that uh, the one I wrote was the last thing that said a Hanna-Barbera production in history. I think it was the last, because I think from moving forward, like Cyber Chase said, a Warner Brothers production. Um, they all say, they all give Hanna-Barbera credit. They all give uh, Ruby Spears credit. But mine said a Hanna-Barbera production with a, with a logo on it. And that was it. And that's something to say. You know, that's something I can say. Oh, another thing I can't say is, that Ewo was over there doing like publicity art, mainly you like sells and things for, for stores. And we had, some of these shows had a lot of Shaggy and Scooby dressed like this, dressed like that, doing this, doing that. And I was the one that said, you know, Ewo's down the hall. He's on staff. He's being paid. Let's draft him to just do that stuff, you know? And Davis was like, I don't know. Would he do it? I think it's kind of beneath him now, you know, to just be a grunt on production line. He's not the designer. He's not this. It's not. I said, we can always ask him. Maybe he likes draw those guys. He's getting paid anyway, you know? And I went down and asked Ewo and Ewo said, Oh, that sounds like a, that sounds like so much fun. So we got Ewo for free, 
relatively because he was already on salary for on a different budget on the development budget. So that was me, you know. So we see Ewo's name on a few of those. That's because I I asked him to help us out, and he was he jumped on it. You know, that's fantastic. And of course, we didn't we didn't have to change a lick. You know, his, his he could draw perfect until the day he died. He could draw perfectly. But uh, I guess what I yeah my takeaway from that is it was a great crew and we had a lot of fun and but we had more fun on one and three than two and four I would say because we had a, a lot a lot of interference on two and four in the writing one and three I could have done one and shows like one and three I could have could have rid out my career doing twenty years of that would had a ball and done some amazing work but it wasn't meant to be. You know, so yeah, but but I, I'd say the end. It's like I wrote, I wrote the last Hanna Barbera thing, you know, ever, and that's that, that's kind of something. It is, yeah. So, what is your favorite version of Scooby Doo? What would be your go-to if you wanted a a Scooby Doo hit? I'm gonna I'm gonna out and out say our our three movies is like my favorite version to watch. I think the. They're enough like the classic to be classic and nostalgic, but they're they have really high end production values where the original show didn't. The original show was clunky, you know, endearing but clunky. Um, I really no, I I I think I think we, honest to God, did the best version of that property ever. Although the writing on Be Cool is some of my favorite writing for that thing, you know, that's also legitimate. Uh, you know, Mr. Inc., I thought Mr. Inc. had great monsters, you know, and had a snappy style to it. And uh, uh, Derek Wyatt, I think, was the character guy in that. I love his stuff. He's He draws really great. I think they all have their virtues. My feet were held to the flame. I have an emotional attachment to our first three movies, you know, and I think they're really, really easy to be proud of those. Why do you think Scooby-Doo is still with us after 47 years? I know there's a lot of people who um, are bitter about that. They're like, why can't my crappy show have half the life of this? Um, you know what? That's that's a question you hear a lot. Like People ask Gene Roddenberry that about Star Trek and different people have different things that have been around. And I can't really point to any one thing. I think one of them is it just has it's been around so long. And so consistently produced, it's kind of in the zeitgeist and those moms at Costco just know it when they see it and they buy it. Um, it has familiarity. Um, everyone has grown up with it. Like every generation has grown up with it. So it's just sort of ubiquitous in the culture. Um, it has an inherent appeal and charm in the designs as perpetrated by Ewo. I think, people some people like now as a kid i wasn't too keen on this but people like the solvable mystery that's a little bit different um you know where it's where it kind of pulls the audience in as a participant to figure it out with with our main characters now as a kid i was a kid i was eight when the show came out i was like i want real monsters i don't care about pulling the rubber mask off someone but most people like that and i think Moms kind of like that. There's something sort of a little intellectually engaging, educational about, like, here's a mystery people can solve. You know, and that's the basis for all those things, for all those quasi-edutainment shows. So Scooby's kind of edutainment because it's putting clues together and coming up with a solution and solving a puzzle. 
So, you know, you're Dory Explorer and Bob the Builder and all those things. You know, they tap into the same thing. So I'm just guessing. And I'm going to say for me, I don't find it any more particularly appealing than my favorite stuff. Like I'm a Johnny Quest guy, yeah. you know, which I far prefer. Uh, or Batman the Animated Series, which I far prefer and that kind of thing. Uh, SWAT Cats even you know, because it had that comic, strong comic book element. Uh, but, uh, but I find Scooby very pleasant. And I think, I think it's, uh, in a way, it's a little bit generic and innocuous, and it goes down easy. You know, like, anyone can kind of enjoy it. Comfort food. And some people really, really love it, but I don't think anyone hates it or dislikes it. You know, like, I, like I, I'm a nut about Ren and Stimpy. But I get why people wouldn't like it, you know, because it's 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 really extreme. You know, it appeals to me very much. Or I can see people like, boy, I like Batman the Animated Series or I like uh, Johnny Quest. But a, yeah, but they're really boy oriented, you know, and and Scooby kind of has something for everybody on one level or another. So if I had to guess, I would say that. Carl Sagan was a fan because of the, the whole skeptical aspect of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think <clears throat> a little of that. And I'm, I'm quite, my own politics are pretty pretty uh, atheistically skeptical and <laughs> that kind of thing. So I guess that's like, like I, I have a real disdain for like psychics and things. But uh, Flynn Flammery, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a fan. I like, I like uh, yeah, now that you put it that way, I said, yeah, I like, I like seeing them get theirs <laughs> and get exposed for pretending things, you know. So that's me. So maybe there's something. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, have a good night. I probably you gave too. enough for two shows. So. Okay. Thank you very much. You betcha. So there you have it. That was part two of my Lance Falk interview. Lance was right. He commented that he probably gave me enough for two episodes, and that's exactly what it turned out to be. So... I'm grateful to him for the time that uh, he gave to me. Had a really great conversation. Lance was really fun to talk to. He's just a very talented guy who knows a lot about animation and loves talking about it, just like the rest of us. So, like I said, I was really happy to have him on the show. I hope you were just as happy to have him on the show and enjoyed the two parts of the conversation. I'd love to hear what you have to say about either the interview with Lance or the Boomerang streaming service that I talked about at the top of the show and anything else Scooby-related that you want to talk about. You can always reach me at the Facebook page or on the Twitter account where I am at ScoobyDooCast. I forgot to mention it uh, when I was talking about it earlier, but I did link to the news article in, I believe it was Variety, about the uh, Boomerang streaming service. So if you're interested in that, you can also click through there. I'm always posting stuff on the page, links to cool things that I found, other fan pages, other bits and bobs. So it's generally worth checking out if you have any interest in the subject matter. I try to keep it different from kind of what everybody else is posting, so hopefully I'm managing that at least. There's also the podcast name Scooby-Doo Instagram account. Feel free to follow us there. And if you get the show off of iTunes, like many, many people probably do, while you're there, it only takes a minute feel free to rate and review the show. Five-star reviews really help with podcast standings and getting the show out there. And the reviews, of course, uh, if you say some nice things about the show, it just encourages people to check us out. Also, if you love the show and you know some people who are interested in animation or Scooby-Doo or Hanna-Barbera and you think they might dig the show, feel free to share it 
spread the word, spread the gospel. And while I'm talking about spreading the word, I'm going to just say, if you dig Scooby-Doo, be sure to check out the other two podcasts that are out there. What's With You, Scooby-Doo, and Scooby-Doo's or Scooby-Don'ts. Both really fun podcasts to listen to. Both kind of have their own angle. It's actually really great that the uh, three of us are out here and we're all kind of taking a different attack at the subject matter. That just means that there's more good content to listen to with less repetition. So very little disharmony in the Scooby-Doo podcasting community. And I should probably cut it off there because I think the show's running a little long. We're kind of uh, creeping up on that hour mark and I know you've all probably got better, more interesting things to do. So thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate your support. Be sure to come back next time when it'll be one of two interviews. I won't say any names just in case it doesn't actually pan out, but I'm sure you'll be happy with both of them. We're just trying to nail down some dates and get everything sorted out. Take care, keep on watching, and spread the Scooby word. Keep it real. She did was still and clear until we saw the broken flight ring of the balladeer whose name is Kyle! 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 The ring balladeer! Kyle! Everybody cheer! This is how we solve the mystery. This is how we solve the mystery. So in summation, this narration is my donation to the art of mystery solving dictation. Here's what the bad guys say when they play where the law forbids. What a kind of way with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling kids. This is how we solve the mystery. Bye.